Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, New Covenant. Glad to be back after a four-day retreat with our youth. Um, Apparently... Myself and Chris and Paul need to recover our masculinity after hearing our screams that I hear most of you got to see and hear on screen. Um, It was a blast, and yes, we did sound like mid-school girls. However, let me say this. After some dodgeball and full-contact football with like 30 of our students, Chris broke a kid's face, Paul broke a kid's glasses, and I just about broke a kid's sternum. Bam! So our masculinity is back. So I can preach up here like a real man again. So, with that said, we desperately need to pray before we dive into the Word of God. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we just praise you for this morning. And uh, Lord, we are thankful that we can laugh at ourselves, we can have joy. Um, Lord, we can just be ecstatic about what you're doing in our midst. And Uh, The one thing that we are the most ecstatic about is who you are and what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, we are thankful that regardless of what happens in our midst, regardless of what happens in our world, that Lord, you are King of Kings, you are Lord of Lords, you are fully and completely in control, and we're so thankful for that. Lord, this morning belongs to you, Uh, we belong to you, and so may you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I know many of you are familiar with the term oxymoron. It's when you take two words that are contradictory and yet you join them together. I'll throw a few out at you, but jumbo shrimp, pretty ugly, ill health, freezer burn, Uh, we got old news, airline food. Sorry, I just had to throw that one. Here's one, though, that we should probably never hear, or I'm going to say we should never hear, and we're going to hear it in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, verses 1 through 6, as we get ready to dive into the church at at Sardis, and it's the words dead church. Those two words should literally never go together. I'll explain to you why. The word church in the Greek is that word ekklesia. Uh, Ekklesia is really two Greek words brought together. It's the Greek preposition ek, and then it's the noun uh, kaleo, or I'm sorry, the verb kaleo, and ek literally means out of, to take out of or to draw out. And then that word kaleo means I call. So in the plural form, ecclesia, it literally means called out ones. So here's the big question. What are you and I called out for? What are we called out to do? This is where it gets exciting to be the church. It's actually quite an adventure to be the called out ones. If you've ever thought the church is boring or living the Christian life is boring or the Bible is boring, again, I got to go back to what church are you going to? What Bible are you reading? What life are you living? Because life with Jesus is a thrill. And when you're really walking with him, all kinds of attacks from the enemy comes and this world that hated Jesus is going to hate us. And in some weird way, we can look at all of that and go, this is exciting. It means that God is moving. It means that God is working. So what has he called us out for? Well, he called the church in Sardis out, just like he called us out, to glorify him. In fact, if you take a look at what the word ecclesia, or called out ones, means and what they're supposed to do, we find really one overarching theme. They're called out to worship Jesus and bring him glory. 
You and I, when we're here, we're supposed to worship Jesus and bring Him glory. When we leave here and we live our lives Monday through Saturday outside these four walls, guess what we're supposed to do? Worship Him and bring Him glory. You know what makes our worship services so exciting and so full of life? It's when we've been worshiping Him Monday through Saturday, and really all we're doing on Sunday is just an extension of the rest of the week. Now we just get to do it with our friends. And when you get to do that together with your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ, man, that's a celebration. I'm, I'm concerned with the number of churches that meet week in and week out that it's not really a celebration. It's more of a, yeah, I had to get up this morning. I got to go listen to that talking head do his thing. I'll watch the worship team do a few songs. And then I'm supposed to go out and I'm supposed to live this pure and chaste life. No, that's part of it. But I'm praying that we are excited when we dive into the Word of God. This is a collection, remember, of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 authors on three continents and three languages, and yet it coincides perfectly. The story from front to back is all exciting from creation all the way to consummation, and everything that happens in between is exciting. From the moment that you're born to the moment you die, life is an adventure, especially when you're walking with Jesus. I can't wait to see what He has in store next. Not just for me personally, but for my family, for this church. I just can't wait to see what's next. And I know sometimes we get freaked out, Pastor, things are getting bad. Totally. And guess what the Scriptures told us? They're going to get worse until Jesus returns. So the worse they get, the more excited we get. Going, bring it. Because guess what? You know, we, we played football. Like, somebody had the bright idea of, hey, let's do leaders against students. There was 25 of them. There was five of us. Most of them are bigger than us. It's like sheer defeat. I'm looking at these 25 high schoolers that are like, most of them are like, got me by like 25, 30 pounds. I'm going, we're going to get knocked around. This is going to be fun. However, what a parallel to our walk with Jesus. Sometimes we look around and we go, there's only five of us, but there's like 5,000 of them. How are we ever going to be victorious in this battle? Well, here's the cool thing. We have got the greatest of all time. It ain't Tom Brady. We have got the greatest of all time, the goat in our corner. You know who that is? It's Jesus. I, again, I, I hate to do this to you. I'm going to spoil Revelation. When you get to Revelation 21 and 22, Jesus wins. I just ruined the whole thing. I'm sorry. We ruined the whole thing, but Jesus wins. Well, there are some churches that don't look like they're living like Jesus wins. I pray that we live like a church where we know our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords wins. But the church in Sardis was one of them. There's not a lot of good coming out of the church in Sardis. Now keep your heads up. Next week we'll get much more exciting. We'll take a look at the church in Philadelphia. Where the church in Sardis really didn't have much good to say about them, the church in Philadelphia, Jesus had nothing bad to say about them. So hang in there. This week is the Church of the Living Dead. This is a church that is walking around, and though they look like they're alive, Jesus says, I know who you really are. Would you go there with me, and then would you just do me that huge favor that you do week in and week out? Would you stand with me as we read uh, the Word of God, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6? So Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I have come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, 
And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, church. You can have a seat. So what we oftentimes do around here is what is the one overarching idea that Jesus wants us to be aware of? And I believe it's simply this. Make sure that your reputation reflects your Redeemer. Does your reputation reflect your Redeemer? In other words, what's going on inside doesn't match what's going on on the outside. Now for this poor church right off the bat, Jesus calls them dead. He's got criticism for them. So how can a dead church be revived? Was there ever a period of time in New Covenant's history where you felt like maybe we're a little dead and we need a bit of a revival? I don't have a long-standing history with you all. I'm about five months, five and a half months. And from the time that I have been here, I have seen a church that loves Jesus and has seemingly been pretty on fire for growth. But in my previous 21 years of ministry, I will tell you that in working with other churches, we have seen seasons where there is that period of growth and there's that period of excitement and then there's this period of deadness. And we're going, what happened to us? It's like we have just gone through the, the, the motions. We've got some rote memory down and now we've got this muscle memory and we just do it, but we're not really thinking about what we're doing. And oftentimes our reputation doesn't match our Redeemer. When I say that, what I mean is we should be having the life of Christ live through us everywhere we go. So in what we think about, in what we watch, in how we speak, in how we act and react to different situations, are people seeing Jesus in us? Now, just like the letters to the other churches, Jesus does start with giving his character, where things are going to get a little bit different, and Jesus threw me off this week. We couldn't carry on with the same five C's in a row like we could before, because he jumped straight from his character to his criticism of the church. But let's start with his character. It begins in verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What is Jesus saying when he speaks to this church and says, I am the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We're going to unpack this a little bit, but what he's really saying is, I'm complete and I'm perfect. The character of Christ having the seven spirits of God and the seven stars really speak of his completeness. And it speaks of his perfection. The word ekon in Greek, that word that we translate simply as has, really conveys both ownership and it conveys control. Jesus is the owner of the church, and he controls what's happening in it. The number seven in Scripture, if you're paying attention to what Scripture usually does with the number seven, it almost always means completeness or perfection. So Jesus is saying, I'm absolutely complete, and I'm absolutely perfect. Nobody else is. Here's what I mean by that. Don't ever build your church around a pastor or a figurehead, ever. You, that's the quickest way to wreck your church. And yet, we live in Western society where it seems like a lot of churches really elevate the senior pastor to the position of like CEO, and then he dictates to all the minions how things take place. That is not where you want to go. I am a stupid, feeble human being will, who will fail you multiple times over. So it is extremely important that what you saw this morning gets lived out in our church, that we will have prayerfully 
by the time Resurrection Sunday rolls around, seven men that are helping guide and govern the church, which means that amongst those seven men, there is equal, uh, we are equal in our roles, equal in our leadership, equal in our value. The senior pastor does not have any say over those other six men. That's the way it's supposed to be. If we're smart, we're going to be listening to what you all as the congregation are praying through as well. That is the way that the church should be run. Unfortunately, we have gotten to a place where you put a pope or a dictator above the church, and then he dictates down how everything should happen. That is a dangerous place to be because he is a human being. We don't ever find that there is supposed to be what we call a vicar of Christ, someone in place of Christ. My role, my job as your shepherd is simply to lead you to the great shepherd as the under shepherd. That's my job, not to stand in the place of Christ, but to lead you to Christ, who is the one who is still God, King, Lord of not only the universe, but this individual church as well. So as we go on from there, we, we are going to start to answer a question, what does his character have to do with revival in the church? If our church ever gets to a point where it's kind of dead, meaning we're just not doing much of anything of eternal value outside of going through the motions. What do we do? Well, first of all, recognize that revival only comes from the Lord. It's when we're seeking Him. We can go through all of the steps, A, B, and C, to make your church grow. I will tell you again, in 20-some years of ministry, how many different times I've had stuff come to my inbox saying, hey, just come to this conference and we'll double the size of your church in two weeks. That's fantastic. The part that concerns me is the technique that you have for doubling the size of your church. There are churches out there that are absolutely huge that I would never recommend that you go to because of what is being preached and who it is that's preaching from that pulpit, ever. So are there ways that we could potentially grow our church, get to a point where we really need to build bigger buildings? Absolutely. But if any of that ever entails having to water down or skip over anything that we find in this book, we won't do it as a church. Even if we get narrowed down to there's three of us sitting in this room, that's fine. If that small minority wants to go out and change the world for Jesus, guess what? Did you you know that Jesus wasn't a very good church growth strategist, by the way? He raised up 12. And then he goes out and he starts performing all these miracles and thousands of people follow him. Then if you've ever read the book of John, you get to the end of John chapter 6, and it's a super long chapter. You're at about verse 60. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns around and he gives this statement. He says, you know what? If any of you all want to keep following me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. He wasn't talking about being a cannibal. He wasn't talking about his body literally becoming a real body and and blood at the time of communion or anything like that. What he's saying is, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take all of me into your life. You're going to have to do exactly what I do, say what I say, think how I think. And by the way, when you do that, it's going to get very costly. To those that he was speaking to directly at that time, it's going to cost all of you your lives. What if he looked at you and he said, if you want to keep following me, it's going to cost you your life. How many of you would still say, I'm all in? Because at the time, thousands said, no, thank you. And do you know how many stayed behind? Twelve. That's it. Everybody else is like, you know, the free food that you gave me from that little boy's Lunchable that you took and broke up, I'm in. Healing my paralysis, sounds great. Heal my blindness so I can see, I'm all in. You want to raise my baby from the dead, I'm all in. You want me to die for you? See you later, Jesus, I'm out. And thousands took off. 
and 12 stayed behind. And that was one of the big problems with the church in Sardis. They did a really good job of making it look like they wanted to follow Jesus as long as they were getting out of Jesus what they wanted. But as soon as it was time to wake up and actually follow him wholeheartedly, their response was, Jesus, I'm, I'm good with just putting on the face and looking like a quote-unquote Christian. But being a real follower of Jesus, no thank you. I'm going to ask you again, would you pray for our youth? Uh, the theme of last weekend was becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus. So no more showing up at youth group and, hey, Chris, thanks so much for the free pizza, but actually living out what you're teaching me through God's word? No, thank you. So we wanted to see who's in. We had quite a few students stand up and say, I'm in. Now, now pray that they stick to that commitment because they are our future elders and our future pastors and our future teachers and our future politicians. And I'm excited for them. I'm not totally down on this generation. I think that the Lord has got great plans for things that he can do with our teens and our young adults right here, right now. Some of them are shining examples that are sitting in this room as we speak. Some of them are sitting in this room right now hearing the word of God and then they're going on to their campuses and they're living it out. That's exciting stuff. That's the opposite of where the church in Sardis was at. Let's not be the church in Sardis. Let's remind ourselves that our reputation needs to reflect our Redeemer. Let's move on in verses 1 and 2. He says, I know your works. So here comes the criticism. This is where it gets tough. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What is Jesus' criticism of the church in Sardis? You're living inconsistently. You're living inconsistently on the outside with what's truly happening on the inside. It's fascinating to me how many people we try to impress day in and day out. I'm totally guilty of it. I struggle with being a people pleaser my whole life. But we have got to get to a point where we say the only person that I am living to please is the Lord Jesus. Listen to this. Dr. John MacArthur describes the church in Sardis this way. I thought this was a, a really apt and appropriate illustration. He said, the church in Sardis was like a museum where stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. Interesting. Polls have been taken over the years as to why people don't believe in Jesus or won't attend church. And at the top or near the top, almost every single year is the same answer year in and year out. Anybody want to take a guess at what it is? Too many hypocrites in the church. Now again, remember, my spiritual gift is sarcasm to which I will typically respond. There's too many hypocrites in the church? Well, join us. We could always use one more. Always. We're all walking hypocrisy. We, none of us live up perfectly to who we say we are or who we want people to think we are, which is why we don't ever follow a person, a pastor, a congregation member. We always follow Jesus because someone's always going to let us down, whether it be your mom, your dad, your grandparents, your neighbor, your coach, your pastor, your teacher. Every single one of those people are just that, people. And you know what people do? We're, we've perfected it. We're really good at it. We sin. And we let somebody down. But we learn that Jesus is never going to let us down. Now, apparently the church in Sardis was really good at putting on a show. They played the right part. 
Some of us are really good at putting on a show. Spend time with teens and young adults, this very generation that I'm excited about that God is going to do great things with, but they are really, they're better at it than we are at putting on the right face for the right people, saying the right things at the right times and getting people fooled. I lived that life for the longest time and now it's really come in handy because I can look at some of your teens and young adults and go, you are so full of, what, can I, what word can I use in church? Pucky? That I know what's really going on behind those eyes, so stop lying to me and just be honest. I love getting to do that with a teen. They just like, oh, okay. And then you begin to get to the nitty gritty of what it, really what's going on in life. Well, Jesus now moves to the challenge Take a look at the challenge that Jesus gives in verses 2 and 3. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This next point is super long, so forgive me for giving you a paragraph in your notes for the next line. But the challenge from Jesus starts with this. Wake up. Wake up from your spiritual sleep. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you first heard and received. Keep what you've heard and received. And lastly, repent of your spiritual apathy. When Jesus uses the words wake up, that Greek word is Gregorio. That word Gregorio literally means keep being watchful. So instead of saying, wake up, he could have started, keep being watchful. That is an extremely appropriate metaphor because if you think about it, when you're sleeping, you're not concerned about what's going on around you. You're not even aware of what's going on around you. And at times, the church has become that way. We are asleep. We are either not concerned about what's going on in the world around us or we have chosen to not recognize what's going on in the world around us. Now, what's going to happen with the book of Revelation is we are going to dive into some things in the weeks to come that are supposed to be off the table when it comes to what gets preached from the pulpit. When I say that, I'm talking in most common circles. Pastors will talk about this. There are things that you just shouldn't preach on because if you do, it's going to cause people to wake up from a slumber that they are in that they do not want to be woken up from. And so some of the things that we will be diving into in the book of Revelation that is spoken directly about from the Lord Jesus are how we conduct ourselves when it comes to how we use our bodies and our sexuality, the attack that has come against God's word when it comes to creation and God being the creator. Those types of things are things we're going to dive into. What about the second coming of Jesus? Well, nobody believes that anymore because he's been saying it for 2,000 years and it still hasn't happened. Well, don't forget it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that the Bible spoke, Scripture spoke, the prophets spoke to his first coming. And they had to wait. And do you know why they had to wait? Because God's timing is always better than ours. So 2,000 years later, why hasn't Jesus come yet? Because he's patient. Out of curiosity in this room, how many of you all at least know somebody, at least one person, that if they were to die today, they would be spending eternity in hell separated from him because of their, their not trusting him. Do you know that based off the fact that you all just rose your hands, that that is the reason, one of the reasons why Jesus hasn't come back yet? He has been patient 
with those that have yet to trust him? Well, the second thing Jesus says is strengthen what remains. That word strengthen is the word sterizo. Does that sound like anything? Steroids. It's exactly where we get our word steroids. Steroids is an injection that's given to strengthen a muscle or a tendon or a ligament. Sometimes we need an injection of God's word into our lives to get us to wake up and keep watching what's going on in the world around us. We need to be strengthened because we take a look at the the team on the other side and go, there's 5,000 of them and there's five of us. How is this ever going to happen? Well, we need to remind ourselves of something. When we get that shot of Jesus, and ultimately it's not us living, it's Jesus doing it, we can't lose. So again, we have to continue to remember that. And then they are called to remember and to keep what they have which is their call to actually respond to God's grace. Don't forget what he has done for you. Now, I know none of you all have ever done this before, but I've found myself wanting to complain about all of the things that aren't going well in life, the aches and the pains that I have in my body or the way things aren't going with finances or the relationship issues that I may have or the fact that the car broke down or you name it. But if I were to keep a gratitude journal of all the things that God has done to bless us, far outweighs what I deserve. You know what I deserve, right? Somebody say it. What do I deserve? Death, hell, condemnation. Here's the harder question. Guess what? Do you know what you deserve? Same. And yet that's not what Jesus gives us. Instead of giving us death, he says, I'm going to give you life. Instead of condemnation, he says, I'm going to give you justification. Instead of hell, I'm going to bring you all the way to heaven. And it's not because of anything that I've done or anything that you've done. At this point in time, it would probably help us to know a little bit about Sardis. How did they get to the point where they fell asleep, they forgot, they didn't repent? Well, if you take a look at our map, you all can see Sardis up here, and this isn't going to give you a whole lot of detail, but Sardis, the way Sardis was built... Uh, It was about 30 miles south of Thyatira, which you see up there just north of it. It was located in the fertile valley of what we call the Hermes River. Within that valley, it had multiple spurs or multiple hills that jutted out from the ridge of a mountain called Mount Tamolus. Mount Tamolus was one of those hills that was about 1,500 feet in elevation. It was quite a traverse to get to the top, to get to where Sardis was at. And because of Sardis's advantageous location, they thought they were impenetrable, invincible. No one's going to get to us ever. Well, this caused the people of Sardis to become quite overconfident. And in essence, they kind of fell asleep to the dangers that were all around them. Well, on comes this people group called the Persians, led by a guy named King Cyrus, who was kind of hell-bent on taking over everything. And Sardis is kind of looking at them from 1,500 feet up going, bring it on, give me your best shot. Well, what happened was they thought nobody would ever make it up the top of that hill and ever take over Sardis. So one night, literally when they went to sleep, over the course of about five or six hours, they actually built these really big ladders and they climbed up them one by one. And over the course of five, six hours, they have the Persians dropping into the city of Sardis while nobody even knows about it because they're all asleep. And while they were asleep, this massive slaughter happens at King Cyrus's 
uh, behest. And he has the Persian army go in and wipe them out and soundly defeats Sardis. And therein lies the end of Sardis. Now, you want to talk about a great biblical illustration. Sometimes we fall asleep and little things creep into the church. You usually don't see a church collapse in a day. You don't see 300, 400 people sitting in our church one Sunday. The next Sunday, we're closing our doors. What happens is day in and day out, we allow little things from the culture to creep into the church that should never be allowed into the church. We begin to water down one, what we say, small thing in Scripture. And we chalk it up as, well, it's not an issue of salvation, so let's not worry about it. But what I read in Scripture is that all Scripture is God-breathed, which means that we need to be protectors and preservers of all of it. So which means if one small apostasy or heresy begins to creep into the church, we need to man up and be big boys and big girls and say, you know what, we're not going to allow this into the church. We're going to preserve the word of God because the word of God needs to be preserved. We're going to allow Jesus to have his way. It's not about us. And we're going to become more and more like him every single day. And that might cost us. That might cost us fines from a government. That might cost us attendance in our congregation. That might cost us money because not as many people are going to give or we might actually get fines and lose more money. And then we have to begin to ask ourselves, are we okay with that? Well, let's ask the question, are you okay with that? Is Jesus worth it? I would say absolutely. This life is going to come and this life is going to go, but my eternal life with Jesus is forever. I don't know if I've told you this or not, but forever is a lot longer than this life. I'm learning, but forever is a lot longer than the average lifespan of 85 or 83 years. Forever is going to be a long time. Let's go to verse 4. We finally get a little bit of a commendation. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Christ's commendation here is an encouragement to that faithful remnant. If you feel like that faithful remnant who's just being beat up, take some encouragement this morning. He says they had remained pure despite the culture they lived in. When he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people have not soiled their garments, he's not speaking to people that use tied on their tunics. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying I, there's a faithful few that have remained obedient. You've remained pure. It actually really is possible for our kids, for us, for our churches to walk in Christ-likeness, even when the world has dove headlong into sin. It is actually possible. Christ actually taught in the Gospels too, and Paul taught it in the epistles, and John teaches it here that, did you know that when it comes to rewards, it's not going to be the same for everybody? Now, I don't want you to freak out here. This is not about salvation. If you've trusted Jesus, you're going to heaven. But apparently, rewards in heaven and punishment in hell are going to look different for different people. Jesus spoke really clearly. This. I'm only going to give you three examples. There's a lot of them in Scripture. But did you know that hell is actually going to be worse for some than others? Now, hell is going to be hell. The lake of fire is going to be the lake of fire. Gehenna is going to be Gehenna. It's going to be awful for anybody that's not trusted Christ. But from what we see in the Scriptures, it's actually going to be worse for some than for others. Heaven is going to be amazing. I can't wait to get there. It's going to be amazing for everybody. But apparently it's going to be even more amazing for those that have been faithful and have faithfully witnessed. 
and have faithfully put up with some really hard stuff. Let me show you what I mean. Speaking of differing degrees of punishment in hell, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, just one brief example, says he began to, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he goes on to speak of other cities that are going to be judged even more harshly. When it comes to heaven, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 10 through 15, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I don't know what our rewards are going to look like in heaven. I don't know what it's going to be like to experience those rewards that we'll receive that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. I don't know what it's going to be like to shine like the stars in the universe according to Daniel chapter 12, but I do know this. Jesus is bigger, greater, and better than anything this world has to offer. So if he tells me that I have a reward coming from him, that's far better than any dollar I could ever receive this side of heaven. It's better than any car that I could ever drive or any house that I could ever live in. It's better than any sexual pleasure you could ever engage in. It's better than all of that. So why not live for Jesus wholeheartedly now? Why not wake up and strengthen what remains right now? Anybody up for it? Okay, good. Are we still awake? Do we need to go back to the first verse of today? Wake up? Okay. Let's, uh, let's take a look at the next thing that Jesus says, and we're going to get ready to round this out. What's the counsel to the church? He says, well, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the counsel to the church in Sardis? Remain faithful. Gang, remain faithful and so be clothed in white garments due to your name being written in the book of life. Now, this poses a big question that people have asked Hey, does God have an eraser in heaven? Doesn't this verse right here say that I could actually lose my salvation? I want to note something here. Don't make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. It's not speaking to the non overcomer, it's speaking to the overcomer. It's saying, without a doubt, you have eternal security in Jesus. I won't ever blot your name out of the, the book of life. That's all it's saying. There's also this well-established figure of speech that they used back then called latotes. If you're not familiar with latotes, it's just simply a way of making a positive point by denying its opposite. Let me try to give you an example. No one will ever love you as much as I do. 
I just denied the opposite by stating, I actually love you more than anybody else will ever love you. Imagine that coming from the Lord. No one will ever love you as much as I do. In essence, what he was really saying, the positive point is, I love you more than anybody else ever could. Here, the point that John is making is, or Jesus is making through John, I'm going to make a positive point by denying the opposite. The positive point is you are eternally secure in Jesus because of what he's done. I bring this up because, again, some of us walk around scared all the time, like, man, I just hope I didn't do too much to lose my salvation. I really messed up this week. I hope Jesus still loves me. Again, I'm going to throw this out to you. You can't find a single passage in Scripture that says that you could lose your salvation. If you could lose it, you'd think that God would make very clear exactly what you have to do to lose it. Because he made very clear what you have to do to attain it. And that is simply by grace through faith that you are saved. Let me close this morning with this. And I thought that this was just a beautiful illustration of living for what matters most. There was this brilliant young pianist, and he gave his very first concert. And the concert seemed to go flawless. Everybody stood on their feet. The applause just reverberated in the hall. And there was one member of the audience that remained seated. He did kind of a little polite golf clap, but nothing major. And the young man that played, his head just dropped. And tears welled up in his eyes, and he ran off the stage. And afterwards, one observant man walked up and said, I saw your head drop, and you started bawling because one person didn't stand up and cheer for you. Son, you're a hit. Everyone was overwhelmed. Even the writer from Times Magazine was in tears. You're going to be famous. You can't let one guy get you down. The young man looked up and he said, you don't understand. That one man was my piano teacher. He's the only one that matters. Think about that for a sec. We could put on the right show, put on the right face, say all the right things. Everybody in the world might applaud us. But if our Lord and Savior and Redeemer is not happy, what difference does it make? Let's put a different spin on that. The entire world might be against you, looking to beat you down, doesn't like anything that you have to say, but everything you're saying is coming from the word of God, and the one that actually matters is standing up and raving applause, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Which would you rather be? Listen, our flesh says, I want everybody to stand up and applaud me, but the Spirit speaks to our heart and says, you want Jesus to stand up and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? I'm going to pray. As I'm praying, I'm going to invite Jack up, and Jack is going to lead us in taking communion this morning. So let me go ahead and just spend a moment and pray for us, and then I'll have Jack lead us uh, in our time of communion together. Lord Jesus, thank you again for our time together. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we ask that you would continue to remind our hearts that all that matters is that the one, the Lord Jesus, the King, is the one who's standing up in applause. When the world is shaking their fist. Lord, may you be welcoming us into your kingdom. Lord, if we have gone about trying to appease or please the right people, Lord, would you convict our hearts of that and may we turn around and follow you and you alone. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for how you, Lord, allowed the world to not only shake its fist at you, but to beat you with it and then to put you on a cross. But Lord, we are so thankful that in 
a few short weeks, we get to celebrate that even the grave couldn't keep you down. And so, Lord Jesus, it's you that we honor and worship this morning. It's in your name we all pray together. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.